So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. What you want, I think. Yeah, I'm um, looking at it right now. This is cool. Uh, the reason I bring that up is we cover, and the reason that we set up the book the way we did wasn't just that it's this monolith. It is very much like what we're trying to get across, where it's a series of modules. There is a chapter on classic organizational operating model for those that want that strategic view and how it fits. There's a chapter on agile and how how people all flow and then how structural structured to get or not. There's something on experience design. There's something on how you actually look at processes to call it responsive value chain. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got repeat guest Jeff Kavanoff back with another book. Jeff, glad to have you back. Glad to be here, Jess. Thanks. So as just a, a precursor for anybody who, who doesn't remember when you were on the show before, can you talk a little bit about your role at Infosys and what you do, and then tell us about the live enterprise? Sure. Last time I was on, we launched Consulting Essentials. It's foundational skills for professionals. And since then, we have looked at a lot of these foundational skills, and especially thought leadership and took on a role where we consolidated that across the company. So for the past few years, we've been building that up. And this this uh, book is, is, is one of the first major works coming out, first, first book as part of that initiative. It's how large complex companies can compete with the startups and digital superstars. And it's in uh, fruits of our own journey and what we went through in the past few years to do that as well as what we've seen with our 1400 plus clients. So we, we work with them. Sometimes we have a front row seat. Sometimes we're actually in there working with them. And then also the Knowledge Institute, which is this think tank, a research arm, thought leadership arm that we've developed over the last couple of years. We've done a lot of primary research on why certain companies succeed, why certain companies make those turns or, or succeed when those uh, changes happen. And, and I think the other part that's really intriguing is in the middle of all that, the pandemic happened. And so not only was it a test about competing in the market, it also was a test of resilience and maybe on some areas that if they weren't black swans, they weren't things people were thinking about. So that's that's what it's about and excited to share that. Yeah. And for people who, who maybe are is familiar with Infosys and you know, 250,000 employees and 13 billion in revenue. Can, can you give people a little bit of a snapshot of the business? Sure. In some respects, it's a, it's a classic Silicon Valley story, but from originating in Bangalore, India, seven individuals who had a small loan from their wives or spouses, and, and they created this, this uh, service IT tech company, started with services and graduated products. We've gotten to 13 billion. We're publicly traded. Uh, significant presence worldwide. As you mentioned, nearly 250,000 employees, I think 240 plus thousand every month it changes. 
and around 13 billion in revenue. We've got a significant presence in the U.S., a lot of hubs, major hiring and major commitment to talent in the U.S. and Europe. It's as much a digital consultancy and product company as, as it is pure services because, as you know, things have converged. One of the things I'm most proud of about Infosys, and I think people are starting to see more and more of it because we're getting more public, is that the commitment, and maybe it's because of the, the origin, origin in India, to sustainability and uh, responsibility to your community and, and broader, in addition to the, the ethical uh, stewardship you know, business-wise and governance, sustainability, employment, those kinds of practices. We're doing a lot in those areas that I think now have really come into vogue with stakeholder capitalism. But supporting it all is strong economics. And I think that the other thing that's relevant is it, you know, we serve a lot of different industries, but it's easy to get caught up in tech and and industries like there are these abstract things. You get management speak. It's really more interesting when you make it more human. Like, what is it about talent and how can companies survive and and continue to allow employees to uh, develop their careers, serve their families, contribute back to their communities? And I think that additional dimension has helped us really connect with clients because they're also struggling with some of the same things. So I think if nothing else, the the watchword for relationships these days is, yeah, you got to do the transactional piece, but you also have to have content-based relationships where you've got some higher purpose because that ultimately is what ties everyone together. So who's an example of a, a big client for you guys and what do you do for them? Some of the work we do is uh, strategic and confidential, can't share, but but most of it uh, we can. I think Johnson Controls is an example of a, a company where good old-fashioned company based out of Milwaukee, who multi-billion dollar leader in HVAC, you know, building controls. We do a lot of basic services for them. We also work with them in a more strategic way, like smart buildings and what are things they can do to serve their customers better. Uh, so that's an example where there are some some services, but a lot of things also that are the pretty cool new things. Uh, a lot of these are companies that we've had relationships with 10, 15, sometimes 20 years. And you know, so they're very deep relationships. And and so we have a very much aligned interest going forward. You know, Toyota is a client of ours as well. I personally worked with them uh, in a variety of capacities. So most industries, most all the continents are covered. And it's a pretty significant footprint really across the different industries, especially with financial services, manufacturing, and consumer goods and retail and being some of our larger ones. So can you tell me this, this story about good to great to average to your, your route? There? Yeah, well, when we highlight this early in, in, in the book, that emphasis took off. Like I said, there's this energetic set of founders and you know, rooted in, in deep ethics and in this idea of learnability, always learning, being aggressive and hungry. And between this reallocation of work worldwide, as well as, as Tom Friedman talked about in his book, The World Was Flat, this explosion of bandwidth and the ability for services to be deconstructed as well as manufacturing supply chains, Infosys, and by the way, a commitment to quality. So figuring out how to look at rows, rules to, 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 to scale IT, because you know, early days, information technology and, and computing, it was the wild west. For every Apple or Steve Jobs, there was a lot of cautionary tales about people that just couldn't scale or went in the ditch. So we rode that for many years. And of course, Y2K, maybe it's beyond some of the listeners. That was a big issue, 1999, with computer systems being able to handle the extra digits. And so I think combination, emphasis, wasn't alone, but one of a small number of companies, it really took off with that and really carried through to probably 2012, 13. 
And then a funny thing happens. Asthmatotically, you start to average out. It's in the long, like a long run of a bull market. You know, there's not much left as far as new innovation or, or new ideas. And you, you keep squeezing more out of that. You become operationally efficient, maybe a little bit uh, of overhead or a little bit, you know, process you know, centric. And I think that's what happened with Infosys. And then around 2016 or so, I mean, the bits and pieces it was noticed there is that we took a look and said, you know, we need to bring back a lot of that just energetic innovation, not just process innovation, which is important. Also this, this enthusiastic innovation. And also we started celebrating the technical skills like the coders and the people in the front line selling, not just the managers. It's more again, expertise and what you did and who you served, not how many people rolled up through you. Classic, you know, flipping the org chart. So your most senior important people are when you're focused on the clients. And I think that, and also with our founder, one of our founders, Nanda Nilakani, coming back, he had stepped out, taken on a very important initiative with the, the Indian government, the ADAR initiative, which I encourage people to look up, A-A-D-H-A-A-R, essentially the first biometric, basically unique identity for one point something billion people. Huge, huge. And the way that was done with open source technology and doing it quickly and, and reaching out to a lot of people over a billion people in less than six years when it was supposed to take 40 years. So he was thinking, wow, can, if we can do this in, in, in a society or in a you know, government program, why can't we do that for a company? And let's, let's try that at Infosys. And so he came back to Infosys and provided some guidance as chairman. And we introduced these concepts. And then, of course, more of them. And every time someone had an idea, why don't we try something with a client? No, 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 let's do it first ourselves. Let's, let's really get practical with this. And that's what we've essentially done. And not that we're finished, but now that we've done that and gotten the foundation in place and seen the results and market cap more than doubled in three years. And I know that's it's, a, it's an ephemeral thing. At the same time, it's a reflection of a lot of good things that are in place. Uh, I also think that the fact that we had strong results year on year from in the teeth of the pandemic, I mean, from the pandemic to the pre-pandemic, literally strong financial results is also a testament to the resilience that allowed. You know, when people can switch from remote work or from office to remote work in a few days, it's because of some things you did prior. You weren't the only ones, you know, there were a number of companies that had made the investments uh, to do that. But but that, that's essential to the story. You know, what are those components that companies can, can, can um, incorporate that allow them to do that? Yeah, and, so yeah. Let's, let's, let's pick one and dive into it. Okay. One, I think, is, is the, the idea of, a, we call it the quantum organization, which sounds cool. We use the word quantum because in quantum physics, a particle can exist in more than one state simultaneously. That's the idea of quantum. And we thought, well, as a company, you can't just do things sequentially. The pace of the market change is faster than your ability to do or to keep up. So you've got to move more quickly and you can't guess or, or bank on just one initiative into like a venture fund. You, you launch several, a startup launches many things and you evolve quickly and the strongest you know, survive. And so this quantum organization, you must be able to do many things simultaneously. And so that's, and you also must have agile principles baked in at scale. And this idea of a product organization where everything is viewed as this regular updating of a product, even if it's a service or a function in your company. And it takes a little bit of thinking to relate it, but you can relate this to your marketing people, your, your procurement people, your legal folks, what you're doing 
in areas outside of, of coding. And, and that's critical because otherwise you can't be fluid. The other aspect is it's, it's kind of like a non-operating model, operating model. You need to be very fluid because if you have too much structure, then you, you, you will always be behind trying to keep up. So let, let's run through a case study. Can you run us through an example on that? Sure. Uh, there's one other element of it, uh, this idea of shared infrastructure, we call it a digital runway. So imagine that you have an idea and you know we had hundreds of apps in the company. Make this very employee-centric and not just a bunch of customer stories. We had hundreds of apps, dozens of platforms. They all worked, but they were confusing. Your time, approvals, you get a visa, you, you evaluations, whatever it is, all these different employee things. And we had a platform. We consolidated all of them into just a couple platforms. One, the things you do before you get hired. Two, things when you're learning, like a learning platform. And then another one, that's essentially all the self-service for employee things, like I mentioned. And one by one, rather than doing them all at once, in see six-week cycles, just add some functionality and do one thing. And we call them nudges or micro changes. So they make a small change, change your habit. Make a small change, change your habit. Make a small change. And when you look at them individually, this is small. This is nothing. But very soon, you see this is a massive change. And that's getting hundreds of thousands of people to change dramatically over not too long of a time by doing it in very small increments, like a ratchet. Every time you turn, you don't go back. And that's possible because of this digital runway. Uh, imagine like an airport, you're able to take off. You don't pour the runway every time you want to take off a plane. It's existing. And this idea of platforms and platform thinking, we all use it. If you went to WordPress, for example, and you wanted to create a blog, you could do it quickly because they did all that beforehand for you. And that same notion, having a digital runway, having these, these platforms in your company so you can quickly spin up ideas and small teams can have a huge impact quickly by setting that up. And I think that's something that is overlooked too often. That's why projects or good ideas don't get past the, the garage or the experiment because there isn't this ability to scale and that runway is critical. So let's let's run through this. So is this, is the concept, did it come out of the think tank? Is this somebody at headquarters? And then who helps with the strategy and what point did the coders get involved? What does that, what does that look like? You bring up another good point that you've got SMEs across the company, subject matter experts, and innovation can't be, you know, we call it the high priest of innovation or, or someone that's responsible it has to be throughout. At the same time, you do need some unifying structure and that's where people get caught up in either extreme. We have a small group or a group called the Strategic Technology Group. And basically, some architects and, and very senior people that are working with many across the company. And when an idea like this comes up, they're being pulled in from whatever group they're in for this, this for a project to create it. And I think that ability to step in, do something and not let your organizational structure hold you back, that that's important dimension has to come from the top. Spinning it up. This ever, we, we experimented down to two weeks or even one week and up to a few months. And we found six weeks was the right length because we could get a lot done. Yeah, you, you have these, these quick scrums and everything else. But as far as six weeks for a real release, our chairman of our board literally goes through review with these. So this is a very high visibility. So everybody knows it is a, it's an important thing. And so when you're pulled in, it's worth doing. And when it's done, it's there for everyone. And then everyone has the ability to say, oh, how determine how it relates to them. Like, for example, if it's an AI capability, well, maybe it manifests itself differently in HR or maybe differently for the legal contracts or for, for sales or for some kind of delivery. Uh, and I think that's the important thing is you do you need something central, a small team of very senior people. 
And you do need the cultural maturity and the, I guess the executive support to say, yes, step in on help on the, and things like this. And you know what? You're noticed. I mean, it's, it's, it's a badge of honor. Your reputation is enhanced. So you're taking advantage of the grapevine, you know, the, the informal networks. And then the important thing is whatever is there, evolve it. It can't be, okay, we went live, that's done. It's, it's ongoing. And that's that notion of a product organization that you're always doing something. A year from now, you'll be making this thing better. It's like a flow. And I think the other aspect of this, you know, Mark Andreessen said, software's eating the world. Indeed it has. What that means is that all this process mapping and all that stuff you used to do that was separate from computers, it's all together. Because if you can document a process, if it has rules, you can automate it. And what does that mean? DevOps, what thought was thought of as a way of managing software is really a way of managing processes. So yeah, what, so, what did that look like in this example? It meant that we looked at what worked in a, in a certain situation and we have this concept of unbundling and rebundling. We deconstructed something and didn't just copy, replicate it. We said, what are the constituent pieces that are generally applicable and rebundled it in such a way that it was a solid platform, is extensible. And then whoever needed it could rebundle it in such a way that was re relevant for them. So I think the important thing is if something's working, don't force it to everyone else. Look at the, the, the core components that are fundamental. They're relevant. This is where architecture comes in. That, and then again, it sounds uh, a bit abstract, but if you think about it, what works for you, let's say, maybe 70% of it's good for me to use, but rather than you say, either do it yourself or here, just take it and run with it, take a little bit of time, deconstruct, and then reconstruct. And I think that we call it unbundling, rebundling, like, like dolphining, where you kind of go up and down with it. That process we found gives the best of both worlds where you do get the benefit of all these things going on, but you don't get hung up and saying, oh, I have to live with what worked for Jess, even though it doesn't quite fit for me. Yeah. So, and it, it does feel a little bit abstract still. So can you run me through like, we were tracking time this way. And when you say apps, is this on an Infosys system? Is this on their iPhone? What, what kind of an app? Do you it, it is. I mean, it, it's very much a uh, mobile device. That's the other thing is that many, most of what a company has, especially larger ones, they're on old software. And you could spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of years to, to get it into this really cool new technology, but no one has the time. So you put a wrapper around it and you extract something, but you create a mobile app. You create a way of looking at it that just extracts what you need. And, and, and by doing that, you save the time. You can quickly take advantage of modern software and you don't have to spend that time. A lot of clients we've seen in the past go off in a ditch even because they would spend so much time trying to replicate everything. Just put a wrapper around it and use it. Yeah. So just trying to understand that it was like you guys built the ability for people to track their time or something. And the finance guys only wanted this piece, but the HR people wanted all of it and they get like well, a separate app. Yeah. That was the second step. The first step is we unbundled everything. We, we scrutinized it. We had this thing notion of called sentient principles where we looked and said, what is really relevant? We scrutinized what is being used. If it wasn't, we tossed it. So these processes before we rebundled them, we said, you know, 50% of this. What's is, an example is, of something you would have thrown out? The process of claims. I'll keep something real simple. You're, you have an expense claim. 
there were additional approvals that weren't needed. There were there were time time stamps or, or periods of time where it be kicked up. There were too many categories. There were all these exceptions that if you're thinking about risk aversion, they made sense. But as soon as you notice that it started elongating the time, it impact upon accounting and everything else, you said, you know what? We don't need those. We can build those in to rules and roles. And by doing that, different levels, like if you're a salesperson or you're a traveling consultant or you're somebody just wants some basic supplies in an office. Those are different roles and you're able to have different rules in place. Stripping them out, automating them, and then seeing how much extreme automation you can have, it frees up people. And then we've also found that the problem children were probably five to 10% of these processes Rather than trying to automate everything, just acknowledge those are, as we said, problem children, empower a group of, of people across departments or across functions, and totally give them the power to approve. So you're able to overcome those. And, and, and that allows a lot of things like your internal processes, but even things relating to customers, contracts, approvals, pricing, to be done more quickly. I think that speed is something that has a tremendous ripple effect. And I, so it makes so much sense. And I, you know, I've had so many Department of Defense clients, on our consulting firm that we own, right? And like, talk about complexity on top of complexity, like as that compounds over decades, right? It can get pretty onerous. People don't even know why they do it that way. It's just, it was always done that way, right? So to me, it's genius to like pull everything apart and, and ask the hard questions instead of because we've always done it that way, right? My question is on the rebundling. Do you mean that the HR team got a different iPhone app than the finance team? Or what did what does that separate rebundling looks like look like? That's the beautiful thing about this is there's this idea of computational design, which you know, if you and I were were, were laying out journeys, you know, we go to the, the, the whiteboard, we start out a persona, we look at these journeys. It's it's really it's really good, but it's very manual, right? It's almost like it's art, and then you can go apply it, but there are ways of making that more systematic. And we use this word sentience, which can appear, you know, sound creepy, but but it is it's this idea of being more aware. So for example, what you see, let's say you're in HR or I'm in accounting, is literally different. It's the same app, but let's say I'm a person who who they because notice it, it, because it knows it was me that logged in. Is that yes, the point? And not, and not just because you're accounting in HR. It could be that you are a social animal. And you really like referrals. And it would literally show you all these different people who approve something or or or, or rate it. For me, maybe I'm a quant. And, and it would say, oh, this has shown that these are the four or five statistics. So it actually present data to you in such a way that it would motivate the person getting it differently based upon psychometric data, which is just basically your behavior, things you already have in your company. It's just making use of the information on how you learn, how you behave. And, and it learned that because I used the app or something else I did? No, with? it's just because of what you do. Partly it's the role, partly it's just, just history. Again, there's but a I'm lot saying, of How does it know my history? Is it my like Google browsing or my app use? How does it know my uh, history? What's well, in the company? Anything that you, you know, e email wise in general, do you, do you tend to go very, very quantitative? Uh, are there certain words that pop up? All this information is there. And the difference now is people can look at it. This is the equivalent of Facebook social graph. This is a knowledge graph. It is a fundamental concept that allows companies to serve their employees better and really understand what's going on. Well, what, what's fascinating about it to me is this idea of like your chance to use technology to help you treat individuals like an individual instead of like a role or a number. It is. Or a, and right? that's why personas and design thinking, this is the next step. It actually goes to you. So for those of us who don't have budgets, like a $13 billion company might, what, what's a mini version that like a startup or a small company can use? 
Well, the first thing is the the open source community is is amazing. So just check, you know, go into GitHub, go into these other areas, and just check on what's out there because ultimately that's what we're we're building. That's what we're using as a lot of the foundation. So I think that's the first thing. The second is understand what the essence of a, of a knowledge graph or a connected knowledge base is. Just and Google it, or is there a good book, or what would you say? Uh, Google it for now. Actually, we have a chapter on it. In the book, <laughs> okay. The Live Enterprise, hey, and, the book. And tell yeah. people the, the website if they want to pre-order the book. Yeah, uh, the book is The Live Enterprise, and the, the site is infosys.com slash live enterprise, the book. And in fact, there's a fair number amount of this out there, and we'll make sure it's available if you buy the book or not. This is it's a really important concept because I, I believe it's going to allow a lot of traditional companies and startups as well a framework to look at things and and, and some actions to actually take. And the reason I, I, I hesitate a little bit is there are some very technical aspects out there or renditions of knowledge graph. I think that's where people go off in a ditch because it is a technical thing. At the same time, the concept of knowledge and knowledge management that is not a brand new concept. And, and I think if we simply take advantage of all the information, if you're a really small company, purposefully ask what's going on. Use, if you're using Teams or Microsoft or something else, guess what? They have tools that you can use and, and, and you can pull out sentiment analysis and nothing else. And it's just, yes, you have the whole thing with privacy. But again, there's a balance in your own life. You yeah, give up you, some privacy to get some more personalization. Well, no, and I it's interesting, right? Because I think it's obviously a hot topic and there's there's issues for folks that maybe haven't taken it as seriously as they could have and whatever. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like I see advantages. Like you think about what we're trying to do at Greystoke Media and we're trying to help innovators and entrepreneurs and investors, right? We're, we're bringing thought leaders like you to come say like, Hey, here's an idea at our $13 billion company. We figured this out, right? So they can go back and think about it for themselves. But, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to provide information and inspiration for them growing their own businesses. We're trying to provide passive income investments if they want to buy into our real estate investments. Right. But for me, like being able to have something where when somebody comes to Grace Stoke Media and we like, and it knows, Hey, they really do not care about all the geeky marketing stuff. Jess always talks about they really want to, they really want to go back to like the Warren Buffett compound interesting, compound interest investing. How do I apply this as an individual? And like that personalization aspect and the, like having, having their experience be frictionless and more personally useful instead of them having to like browse and wade through things, you know, to me, it makes me think we, we would have to be really upfront of like, here's what we're tracking. Here's why we're tracking it. You know, build that trust. Here's what we'll never do kind of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I do think there's lots of people like me who think, well, I'm not a billion dollar company. I can't do what Facebook did. And yet you're telling me like, well, open source, maybe there are some aspects that you could do. Yeah, it's a good point because we were, I do disagree that it takes a lot of money though, because the smaller you are, you have, you have in a nonlinear way, exponentially simpler as well. I mean, for example, people can all be in the same room. It can be on a, 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 a town hall, you know, and there are things that you can do even with, with spreadsheets and Google docs and excuse me, shared documents that if nothing else, do you know all the customers you have? Do you know the new things that are coming up? Do you know what's going on? I mean, there's a handful. I was at a small firm many years ago. 
medium sized um, firm. And we would run circles around the very large companies because I made a point of knowing every client we had. Because in the end, I, had, I still had more examples than the behemoths because they only knew what their division had. And, and, I, and I think even manually, you know, pre-internet, if you want to call it that, there are ways of manually doing it. The, the thing I'm distinguishing here is at scale, many companies fall off when they try to get past a certain point. And, and that's frustrating because then you're back into the silos. The digital runway and this knowledge graph are two ways of transcending or you know, keeping that cool collaborative knowledge management and yet doing it when you have lots of zeros behind the number of employees you have. Well, you know, it, it's interesting as I think about this term, live enterprise, right? How often does the word like corporate make it seem impersonal or things like this? You notice right? I haven't used that word in our entire discussion. Yeah. You know, you think about you think about the many ways that in the quest for efficiency, enterprises have not been individual, personal, these these type of adjectives, right? And what you're talking about, you know, obviously can be used in negative ways, but with this altruistic spin, you know, like that additional information, the ability to serve serve people better, faster. I mean, who doesn't want more with less, right? Well, it, it's funny you bring that up. It's almost like it's a segue because human-centric is the element that we, we, we focus on. What is the, the impact for, for our employees, customers as well? But I think for too long, people have been very customer-centric, but employees were the neglected ones. You got crappy systems. You, everything was second. You realize, well, let's see, if you really are the most important asset and you really are the ones in the front line, and I believe even prior to the pandemic, I think it started to shift and say, ooh, these, these areas are very important for us. So I, I view it like these tools are like an Iron Man suit. You know, they amplify and augment a person's ability to go faster, do more. And when you move the friction, we had an old phrase in engineering called context switching. It could be deep into something, but if you switch context just for, for 30 seconds, you might lose 15 minutes if you're really deep into something. And, you know, minimizing uh, those types of things. This idea of hybrid talent as well, where you have different skills, but you also have different types of employees. You have your full-time employee. You have your gig worker that might weave in and out. You also have your robot. In fact, we work with some people in universities, some university leaders, where they study the team dynamics of robots and humans. And believe it or not, the personality of the robot sometimes changes the team personality. Hint, the empathy goes a little bit lower. But it's interesting how that plays out. So certainly... Thinking about the person, putting the people first, that we found that has been a good uh, North Star for us because then the deeper we get into tech and all the things it can do, it still gives us a path. Yeah. So I'm guessing that there's going to be some people who've listened to this who feel like I do right now who are like, well, that sounds cool. Where do I go from here? You know, so obviously reading your book, but are there thought leaders? Are there how to's like for people who want to go deeper into the implementation after they've read the book? stuff like this social graph, things like that. Where do you, you know, where do you recommend people uh, start? Well, there's a lot of free material that the Knowledge Institute has created. And while we are putting a book out, there's a lot that's for free. You know, it's, it's out there. So whether it's the LinkedIn articles, whether it's on our site, emphasis.com slash IKI, there are a lot of small papers that go specific on these topics. And so I think depending on the interest, whether it's talent or AI, or experience design, you've got some very specific things and it's a good platform to go and just search and find what you want. I think- Yeah, I'm looking um, at it right now. This is cool. Uh, the reason I bring that up is we cover, and the reason that we set up the book the way we did wasn't just that it's this monolith. 
it is very much like what we're trying to get across where it's a series of modules. There is a chapter on classic organizational operating model for those that want that strategic view and how it fits. There's a chapter on agile and how, how people all flow and then how structural, structured to get from that. There's something on experience design. There's something on how you actually look at processes. We call it responsive value chains. And there's even something on what we call the um, triple helix or how the stakeholder capitalism and how you look at your responsibilities in the community, how this relates to environment and, and how these principles will help you beyond the walls of your company. And then we there are a couple of chapters that we go deep in the technical piece, like how do you design architecture to actually be fluid and evolve? This digital runway, what's it look like? And yeah, there are some tables that are very specific, but we thought that a book like this, if we didn't go into some detail at some point, then people wouldn't really have the how-to. So we combine, you know, we balance the people with, with a bit of the rows and columns because we want to make it as practical as well as inspirational. Yeah, I'm interested with this subject matter in general. How do you help people not, not slip into overwhelm, like just paralysis by like the sheer volume of it? If you, if you take the, the average professional who's well-intended, intelligent, and working hard, I, I think you just highlighted the, actual, the biggest actual risk is because today you're only a few clicks away from getting more information you can possibly consume and even more than you can possibly implement. And so I think this idea of deciding, you know, the classic Michael Porter strategy, strategy is what you decide not to do as well as it's what you do. And I think the starting point is to look at your business model or customers and say, you know, how are you trying to support them? That's why this operating model is what we started with. I know it sounds like a bit abstract, but if you think about what an operating model is, it's how you do the thing that you're in business to do, how you serve customers, how you support your employees. And I think if you start with just laying that out, and we have one of those in, in early in the book, and say, so, okay, these are the four or five chunks to it. Like, for example, talent. Do we help our people learn? Do they have a path where they're rewarded for what they know, not just how many people report to them? And how do we manage, you know, how do we evaluate our people? These are very basic questions. Yeah. So that one's super interesting to me. What What's an example of, <clears throat> of a way that you could improve the way someone is rewarded for continuous learning? Well, instead of rewarding people or even evaluating them when they come into your company based upon maybe which college they went to only, maybe it's their credentials. Maybe it's the actual demonstrated expertise. Maybe it's the degree of mastery. Also rewarding people for knowing a variety of things, not just going very deep in one thing because and, that ability to synergize. Yeah. And so I guess my question there is when you look at, you know, both testing or evaluating that and what the reward would look like, what are some examples? Well, the reward can be, it is a threshold uh, gating criteria to certain promotions. You can't be promoted unless you've got a, a broader set. Rather than having it limited by tenure in a role, it could be credentials in a role. The other thing is to, to note uh, that if you go above and beyond, like for example, we have this internal gig economy, if you wanna call it that, where people who are very busy on their one project can volunteer for something else they find interesting. We have thousands upon thousands. I mean, 50,000 of these projects over time. Is it like a job board or how do you find out it's about it? It's kind of like that. Yeah, we call it Accelerate internally. And we're, we're doing a lot more with it even where it could be a week's worth of work. It could be something small, it could be something large. Obviously, if you're on, on the bench or if you're not otherwise busy, but there are plenty of people who are full-time busy on something that want to step in and do that. And by being rewarded and say, you know what, there's a way of acknowledging you did that and contributed. So at the end of the day, let's say there are 20 people or 100 people, whatever, in a peer group, those that did more of that, nothing against the ones that didn't, but they should get more recognition. 
And the last but not least is. And, and what does that recognition are, look like? Is that an email that goes out to everyone? Is that a. Well, it's email. It, in some cases, it's cash. And in some cases, it's if you have a finite number of people who can be promoted, well, it is a way to distinguish yourself. You're contributing more. You're already being more of a leader. You're already thinking about the company more broadly or your impact more broadly. And the last thing I wanted to say on that is learning. Our learning platform, which initially we developed for ourselves, has really taken on a life of its own. We call it Lex internally and Wingspan. If you want to look that up, because there's a fair amount of, of a really good thought, thought pieces on that, Wingspan is that measuring learning and measuring the effectiveness. You know, we give people credit, if you want to call it that, for their paths. We have what we call pathways. And so it could be a pathway on a certain discipline and there are multiple pathways. And then there, there are bite-sized modules that some are video, some are hardcore, and you can click a button and actually go into a sandbox if it's technical in nature. So we spent a lot of time in investing in that because we have one of the largest corporate, actually the largest corporate university in the world oh, based really? in Mysore. Yeah, we have one in, in Mysore, a couple hundred acre campus. We're actually building the largest one in the U.S., Indianapolis, Indiana. It'll open up in early 2021. Learning is fundamental to us. And the ability to learn, we call it learnability, is what we call it just a foundational skill that any of our employees do want to have. Yeah. Well, listen, we've got time for maybe one one last subject. What's what's something that we didn't cover that you'd like to? Well, I think the translation of these skills or the, the these concepts into the greater good. It's so easy, I think, to, to, to get caught up in a false dilemma or false ultimatum that it's either you're trying to make a lot of money or you're trying to do something good. And I think this, this practical sustainability and resilience, we believe this live enterprise set of principles accomplishes that or allows you to accomplish that. And I think that's that's the biggest concept. There are ways to look at, obviously, saving energy and money and water. And, you know, those are ways of being sustainable and the other. I think also in our practices, looking at your supply chain or looking at your daily activities, obviously we're traveling a heck of a lot less. Uh, it's one way, but I think sustainability is now being interwoven into everything that we're doing. It isn't a thing off to the side. And I think the the merge of looking at it, almost like it's an integrated unified field theory here of the sustainability metrics and financial metrics taken together. Like that's something I'd like to leave people with. That if, and there's no final answer on these yet. I mean, even the World Economic Forum in September came out with the 21 core principles and the 35 supporting metrics that are ways to measure, but it's taking those 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, giving them a little more teeth. I think now the next step is to, is to drive them, not just as this virtue signaling neat thing out there, but how do you actually live it? How do you build it into objectives? And I think that's something that's important to do going forward as well. Yeah. You think about how much skepticism there is from enterprises that, you know, some executive goes to Davos and gets interviewed on the business news and mm -hmm. makes some big proclamation, but, you know, people in the company don't, don't feel it, right? Like the actions, like it, it almost feels more like a marketing stunt, right? And like mm -hmm. the executive gets to feel very good about themselves, but like, the the general population, like the perception of the business doesn't change because it just looks like an executive who's really proud of themselves for making a declaration. Mm -hmm. When you think about whether it's ESG goals or or some other some other type of you know cause, some we're going to make the world better while making money. Any advice you have on helping people li live their story harder? 
well, I'm just an Indiana farm boy. And, you know, you, you come up, it's very, very practical. You, you start with leading by example and by being part of your routine over a period of time, trust is built up. I think our company's done that. Again, no company's perfect, but I think in that area, that's been a consistency. I think it becomes part of your personal culture, your habits and the company culture when you see consistency and a, a critical mass of senior people asking about it, doing it, showing examples celebrating it. And then of course, celebrating individual successes. In our case, it might be when we went carbon neutral or, or water neutral in a certain facility or the digital twin that saved $50 million in, in, in water and efficiency, or, or maybe even a sustainable project where taking this helped a, a civic, you know, civic project in some country, you know, help somebody else do it. I think we're seeing more of that. In fact, we're, we're getting a lot of phone calls now, emails and contacts where people are saying, can we work together? I like what you're doing in this area. So in, in effect, it's been an inadvertent business development because, or, or, or I guess channel, because people now respect it. And they say, you know, how can we as partners maybe do more together? And I believe that's also applicable on an individual level. So if you and I, for example, know that's a common interest, that can be a topic. And by the way, the business aspect of our discussion, not that it's trivial, but it's a heck of a lot easier if we're already locked in on purpose and it influences the rest of what we're saying. And, you know, I won't tell you my age, but my daughters are old enough you know, as they're out there making decisions. And they talk about why they choose to shop somewhere versus not or do business somewhere. And it's amazing how the first reason or a leading reason is that company's approach to employees and the environment and, and overall governance or social and not the fact that their product was better than somebody else. They almost take that part for granted. You know, they want the other. So I think even the consumer's uh, approach to buying has shifted enough, you know, measurably that, that this this is a good place to start a discussion. And, and I, again, role leading by example, I think is an important aspect of this. Very cool. Well, one more time, where can people pre-order the book? Liveinfosys.com slash live enterprise the book, just laid out like that. And it will have examples and a place to pre-order from, from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. And any support's appreciated. We think it's an important message. So whether you, you buy the book or just look at the principles, there are too many good companies that need to survive and thrive, especially with all the headwinds they're getting. And there's no reason they shouldn't because ultimately the best of the old products, pro customers and relationships with these digital tools is going to help us all in the future. Cool. Well, thanks again for making time here. You bet. Thanks for having me, Jess. Okay. Bye everyone.